Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. Uh, my name is Rachel Woolard. I'm the creative arts minister here at Area 10. And if you're like me, you grew up playing normal games like checkers, Monopoly, uh, apples to apples. But have you ever heard of Settlers of Catan? We have a lot of people who play Settlers of Catan here. And Settlers is, in my opinion, um, the gateway drug of board games. Uh, If you play Settlers one time, you will immediately know whether or not you are a board game person or not. There are lands to be conquered, resources to be traded, uh, a variety of ways to gain victory points and win the game. So if you love strategizing, outwitting your friends, and building unnecessarily long roads, Well, you have very strong opinions about Settlers of Catan one way or another. And once you get the hang of Settlers, the sky is kind of the limit. There is a whole world of board games out there. Uh, There are drafting games like Sushi Go or Seven Wonders, engine builders like Century or Machikoro, deck building games like Dominion or area control games like Catan or Small World. And my personal favorite are probably cooperative board games, where instead of trying to beat one another in the game, you're actually trying to beat the game itself. So like Pandemic or Small, uh, no, Mysterium. And these are all fantastic games, by the way. If you need to test, snap a quick picture, head on over to One Eye Jacks after the service. Any of these will do ya. Um, but regardless of the game that we play, in the Woolard household, and by that I mean me and Zach, uh, we adhere to a very strict code of ethics. Yes, you can lie, cheat, and steal your way to victory, but only if the directions explicitly tell you to do so. Because a win acquired by underhanded means is not a win at all and totally invalidates the entire gaming experience. When a person cheats, everybody loses. We are all here to have a good time, and we take that very seriously. In fact, I think if the Woolard family had a crest, it would say, per librum pro Victoria. And of course, because I'm a very visual person, I had to actually make the family crest, because why not? Um, But this pseudo-Latin phrase means, by the book, for the win. (laughs) Yeah, if you know my husband, this makes total sense. Um, I think that this mindset set affects a lot of the choices that I make. Um, It's why I appreciate board games so much. In a game, the victory conditions are always very, very clear and known up front. Although your strategy might change from player to player, we all know from the start what it is going to take to win the game. Life, however, is much messier. Everyone has a different opinion of how you win at life, and it seems like more and more people are kind of writing their own rule book as they go along and changing the game rules as you live longer. And as a faith community, we recently started reading a book called First John together. It's a relatively short and poetic book, but it's kind of complicated. Um, The Apostle John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples during his ministry on earth. And much later in his life, John is explaining some of the more complicated aspects of the Christian faith, writing them down for church um, 
that he was around to read, but it also is kind of applies to us as a faith community today. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus thought that they knew how this game was played. And they had even come up with their own like homebrew rules or house rules to further expand on the scriptures that were given as a part of the Old Testament. They had essentially created their own like expansion packs, which we call the Talmud and the Mishnah, to try and explain the parts that they felt weren't clear enough in the original version. And then Jesus came along, and he turned the tables on the game that they were playing. His life, death, and resurrection completely redefined what religion was. And now, in Jesus' absence, the young church is trying to figure out how all the new rules work. And so, in the book of 1 John, he is providing some supplemental texts for additional clarification. Over the past few weeks, Chris explored chapter 1 and talked about hypocrites and walking in the light. And be sure to check those messages out if you miss them. But in the next section, John is going to repeat some of those same ideas, and he's going to bring some new ideas in. So we're going to tackle those as we come across them. Uh, We're going to pick up in the start of chapter 2. My little children, John writes, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Okay, John says, my children who I love and I care for as a father would, let's make these rules abundantly clear. Rule number one, plan A, do not sin. Just don't. Okay. Sound good? All right. We can wrap this thing up. Bible is over. We can leave and go to lunch a little bit early. But I, for one, think it's not that simple, and I still have a lot of questions. Like, what exactly constitutes as a sin, and why does God care if we do it? I think as Christians, we can sometimes forget that these words like sin and being sinful don't really exist outside of the church. And so we're going to take a second and just break down this idea. Sin at its core is deciding that we know better than God. Sin comes from thinking that I know best and that God's opinion of what is right and wrong is irrelevant. Sin started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve um, when they decided that they didn't actually listen, need to listen to God's commands. And hey, this apple looks pretty tasty, so... But sin at the fundamental level is putting my wants and desires over anything else. Sin is selfishness. And sin always breaks down relationships. And so when we look at the commands in the Bible, we can start to understand that God doesn't want us to lie because lying deceives and hurts the people that we're in relationship with. God says don't covet your neighbor's wife because it puts a relationship rift in between you and your neighbor, and it's probably going to end pretty poorly. We were created to be in community with each other, and when we intentionally or unintentionally harm one another, it breaks down relationships. But the number one reason that God cares if we sin or not is because it breaks our relationship with him. God, because he is holy, cannot be in the presence of sin. We talked last week about how God is light. There is no darkness in him, but we have darkness in us. So in order to be in a relationship with a good God, we have to root out that darkness. God cares if we sin because he cares about us. He wants what is best for us, and despite what we think, our short-term ideas of what's going to make us happier, healthier, wealthier are actually not the best path forward. God wants more for us than just to feel good, but to be good. 
and to experience the peace, hope, love, joy, patience, kindness that comes with a fully transformed life. So plan A is a simple one. Do not sin. But if we learn anything from reading the Bible, or let's be real from our own personal experience, is that this simple, straightforward plan is anything but easy. Hence the introduction of plan B immediately after. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I love that the English translators of this were kind enough to put an if in here, as if if is even an option. The original Greek word actually leans a little bit closer to when. So let's just be real and let's say when anyone does sin. Because we know it's going to happen. Even when we're trying our best, we don't mean to, but we're going to get hungry or sleepy or cranky or hangry, and we're going to say something that we shouldn't. We're going to overreact when our toddler is throwing a temper tantrum in public. Or we're going to get another email back from a client that does not answer any of your email or any of your questions that you sent in your last email, and we are going to lose our cool about it. And when this happens, God gave us a plan B through his son, Jesus. John continues, he is the propitiation of our sins. And not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, when people asked me what I was going to be preaching on this week, I was like, oh, propitiation. They're like, I don't know what that means. (laughs) Um, I'm curious if anybody thinks that they could stand up right now and give us a semi-decent explanation of what propitiation is. No? No takers? I didn't think so. This is not a word that we use in everyday conversation. It is one of the few times that John mentions it in this letter, so we're going to break it down. Traditionally, the idea of propitiation means the action of regaining the favor of a God, spirit, or person by doing something that pleases them. I find myself doing this a lot with my cat, Benedict. (laughs) Like, sorry, bud, I have to put you in the bedroom while company comes over, but I'm going to open the window for you so you can, like get some fresh air. Or I have to be at work all day today. I'm not going to be getting back till night. So I'm going to turn on cat TV on YouTube and hope that that helps. Like, oh no, I accidentally stepped on your tail. Here's like 20 treats. Please don't hate me. (laughs) Um, You know, they say the difference between dogs and cats is that with dogs, you give them, you know, food, love, and shelter, and they think you're a god. Like, this is amazing. You give food, love, and shelter to a cat, and they think they're god. And I say that as a cat person. Um, Cats are actually a pretty good approximation for the attitude that most people attributed to gods and goddesses at this time. Worshippers of any god were used to the idea that you needed to placate the wrath of various gods with offerings of food or wine or animal sacrifice. But the Bible takes that idea and it twists it. That this type of propitiation that we see in the gospel is not a capricious God who is being placated with gifts to soothe their ego, but instead of God choosing to turn away and redirect appropriate punishment to someone else who's willing to accept it. Let's give a more real-life example of something like this that we might encounter in everyday life. Um, Imagine for a moment that you have a significant debt that you cannot repay on your own. For some of you, that may not be an imaginary scenario. (laughs) Um, With the cost of college tuition and medical expenses and housing these days, this is a more and more common thing. 
But in this imaginary situation, this debt is a burden that weighs you down and affects every aspect of your life. You've got creditors calling, you can't buy a house, numbers and numbers, like every single day, this debt weighs down on you. And no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to find a way to settle the debt or free yourself from its consequences. Now, consider someone who cares about you deeply and knows about your financial struggles. This person, out of love and compassion, is able to step in and pay off your entire debt on your behalf. They take the burden upon themselves and make the necessary payment, relieving you of the debt that you could not repay. You didn't have to do anything to earn that money, but the debt had to be paid because the cost was real. But it was given on your behalf out of compassion. This is how Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. We have a spiritual debt because of our own selfishness and sin that go against God's holiness. And that debt separates us from God, and we can't pay it off on our own by being good enough. The debt is too high. But God wants to be in community with us, so he sent his son, who willingly took on the consequences of our debt and paid it off on our behalf, paying with his own life so that we could be reconciled to God. But some of you might be asking, like, why does there have to be payment at all? Couldn't God, an all-powerful being, just wipe the slate clean and forget about it? Theoretically, yes. But I would argue that then God wouldn't actually be a good God at all. Because deep within us, we know that our world is broken. I remember as a child being upset, probably because one of my friends got something that I wanted and just crying. And my mom came to me and she dropped this absolute bombshell on me. She said, well, life isn't fair. Oh my gosh, my little brain just melted. I was like, what? What? Life isn't fair? That's not fair. And... Life should always, totally, forever be fair, right? The best person for the job should always be the one who is hired. I should get a grade that reflects the amount of effort that I put into the assignment. My parents should know how to express love to me in a way that I can understand and receive. My children should always appreciate the way that I provide for them and should never complain about my parenting. The person that abused us should absolutely feel the same amount of pain and anguish that they caused. That would be fair. That would be a just world. But that's not the world that we live in. Our, our world is heartbreakingly broken, and we have all seen examples of cheaters who prosper, of individuals who hide behind a wall of lawyers and get off on a technicality, of bosses who control the narrative and always end up on top of politicians who swing to whatever side will buy them the most votes, and of leaders who masquerade as heroes when we know the truth about what goes on behind closed doors. All of that is a result of sin. Sin, selfishness of putting our wants and desires above everything and everyone else. And it always costs something. When evil is committed, a price has to be paid to restore the balance because every time we sin, something pays that price. It might be a relationship or a foundation of trust that you've built with someone or our belief in goodness in the world. Something dies. 
And the Old Testament recognized and kind of honored that fact with the act of animal sacrifice. Um, uh, writer and teacher Matt Edwards put it this way, we die because of sin. Death is not a part of God's creative intent, but an alien element brought in by humanity itself. It defaces the image of God within us, and it leads us towards death. Animal sacrifice, as horrible as it is, is nothing compared to the effects of sin. Sacrifice is a ghastly reminder of this for our benefit. Not something that God enjoys because he's sadistic. Because in order to live in a good world, where God is just and fair, some kind of retribution has to be paid, right? And the same is true when I sin. When I hurt others, there's an imbalance in the force. But God in his mercy and his never-ending love has paid the price of the debt of that sin on our behalf if we only just accept it. John continues in verses 3 through 5, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So in these verses, John is drawing a direct correlation between knowing God, knowing Jesus, and keeping his commandments. The two go together. The knowledge of Jesus, he says, leads to obedience. But this isn't just a head knowledge of like, yeah, I know who Jesus is. Because I might know a lot of facts about the life of one of my favorite celebrities, and I like read all the articles about them, but I don't actually know them. You only get to know a person by being in relationship with them, by talking to them, being vulnerable with them, sharing the hard things that you're going through. So what can you do when you're struggling to do the right thing? Like, you know it's not a good idea to keep talking to that married man who loves flirting with you. Or you're in a really hard phase of parenting right now where you're just, like, your kid is super annoying and you're prone to lose your temper at them. Or you know that visiting those websites will only take you to a dark place. But everybody else in the house is asleep and you are typing out that URL before you even think about it. John says that the best way to get your heart back in the right place is through relationship, specifically your relationship with Jesus. He sees you struggling, and he's not giving you the teacher look. You know the one where you have their arms crossed and you're looking over the glasses and shaking your head. No, he's saying, I know that takes you to a dark place. I have a better idea. Come with me. Let me show you. So literally, like, go hang out with Jesus. Get to know him better. I'm not suggesting that you have to lock yourself up in a monastery re reading religious texts all day to stay morally pure. I mean, can you imagine if the only time you hung out with your friend was in a musty old library where you had to whisper everything? I would not look forward to those hangout sessions personally, but like any healthy relationship, you look for things that you can do together. Maybe in order to get to know Jesus more, you invite him on your morning walks where you see the light filter through the trees and you feel the wind on your skin. Maybe you invite him into a conversation with your other Christian friends, asking them what Jesus is doing in their lives so they can talk about him as well. Maybe you invite him into those quiet evenings at home where you drink a glass of your favorite beverage and just reflect on the day.
bring Jesus along when you travel and the joy of experiencing new cultures and food and the beautiful variety that there is in life. Make him a part of your day-to-day, thanking him for the good things that he's brought you and talking to him as a friend. But we all have that um, relationship where you have a friend over and you're trying to tell them about what you're going through and somehow they always seem to just like steamroll you and make it about them. Don't be that guy with Jesus. (laughs) Take time to listen, ask questions, probe deeper into what Jesus thinks about certain situations and ask him how he thinks you should handle it. What is he seeing that you're not, that needs more of your attention? And that push and pull and give and take, that's part of living in real, authentic community with Jesus. And that's how you actually get to know him. John, I have to admit, had one major advantage over us. He actually knew Jesus as a person. Uh, They would walk, you know, down the dusty roads to Jerusalem and make jokes, eat good food, shelter from the rain, stay up late talking about the future. I feel like it would be a whole lot easier to trust and follow Jesus if we could do that, right? But we still have that opportunity now. Maybe not Jesus in the flesh, but his spirit is still active and alive in us, and we still have 24-7 access to talk to him whenever we want to. It's not exactly the same, but Jesus will never reschedule your coffee date at the last minute, and he will always give you his full attention. And the more you get to know him as a companion, the easier it's going to be to follow him as your Lord. Because if you really know Jesus, you'll get why he set certain boundaries in place. It's not some random assignment of, this is right and this is wrong because I said so. No, it's because he wants us to live well and experience the depth of relationship and love that can be attained when we truly hold to who he is. When you truly know Jesus, you won't be chained to that gut, emotional, immediate reaction because you're going to see the bigger picture about how your actions play into the grander story of who God created you to be. Um, We're going to wrap up this section of the text um, with verses 5 through 6. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So this is how you know it's working. If all those coffee dates with Jesus are paying off and you're really being changed by that relationship, you walk in the same way that he walked. You show up for people in the same way that he showed up for you. Back in the mid-90s, there was a really unexpected accessory that came, became super mainstream. Um, before the advent of online shopping was a thing, you could go to this historical ancient place called a mall <laughs> And pretty much at any of those Claire's or anything, you could find um, a four-letter acronym poorly stitched into a bracelet that said WWJD, which for those of you that lived through that will remember it was stood for What Would Jesus Do? I had one of these, and I was literally scared to take it off. I, like, wore it until it fell off of my wrist. I wore it in the shower, in the ocean, to sleep, because I was like, if I take this off, what if I don't remember to to ask myself, what would Jesus do? (laughs) Um, But it seemed like everybody in my school had these. Whether or not they were Christian, it was just, like, the thing to do. Um, and, And they don't exist to the same extent now, but you can actually order them on Amazon, and they'll be delivered right to your doorstep. <laughs> and based on your experiences, that, 
acronym might feel super cheesy or cringeworthy to you, but it's actually an amazing, simple question to ask yourself and keep at the forefront of your mind. When you come up against something that you're, you're not sure how to respond, what do you think Jesus would do in this situation? And the more you get to know Jesus, the more you read stories about his life in the New Testament, the easier that question is going to be to answer. But it's not a tried and true thing. Sometimes we just don't know. What do I do next proactively? So we're going to jump a little bit further into the book of John, um, where he returns to this idea later on in his letter. And he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, once again, we can see that John is talking about what it means to know God, but this time he fleshes it out a little bit more. He says, if you truly know God, then you'll love one another. And if you don't love, then you couldn't possibly know God, because God is love. And that's the whole reason he sent his son to pay the debt for our sins, because God loved us so much. If we really know that at our core, then we're going to love each other. And that idea of loving one another is something that we can and will talk about for a long time. That's why we call this sermon series Summer of Love, is because it is an idea that is worth lingering on and talking about practically. But I want to give you one example of love that I think is a natural and obvious outpouring of what we're talking about this morning. Because according to John, what was the ultimate expression of God's love? He sent his son Jesus as an advocate on our behalf. So I think that it follows naturally that in order to truly love one another, it means that we need to be looking for ways to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. God loved us and saw that we were in need of help, and so he came up with a solution in sending his son. And in order to show that same love, to walk as Jesus walked and follow his example, that naturally includes standing in the gap for those who are weak or working from a distinct disadvantage. Now, I love our city. In many ways, it is a beautiful place. It's filled with green parks, good food, and festivals, and walking trails. Richmond has a lot of charm. But the city is also incredibly broken. Before the Civil War, Richmond was known as a primary hub for slave auctions, with as many as two million black individuals being trafficked through the city of Richmond to the Deep South. And throughout its history, Richmond has continued to establish racist policies around voting, transportation, housing, employment, and more. The foundation of Richmond was built on the grounds of injustice. Even today, the lack of funding for public schools, food deserts and urban areas, inadequate resources for the mentally ill, and so much more. It's really easy to get overwhelmed by the amount of brokenness and just shut down stick your head in the sand. 
And I am by no means an expert on advocacy, but we are really fortunate to have several wonderful local community partners that make it their life's work to tackle these very real issues. Um, one of these organizations, which is called For Richmond, work from our space over at 2810 during the week. And in preparing for this message, I had the chance to sit down with them and ask them about opportunities for advocacy. And while they mentioned some phenomenal ministries and programs that are actively coming alongside the broken and downtrodden, like tackling the foster care crisis in Virginia, or coming alongside Richmond Public Schools, or ministering to workers in local strip clubs, what they seemed the most passionate about was about encouraging people to look at the opportunities that God has already given them in their neighborhood. Do you have an elderly neighbor who's lonely or needs help getting groceries? Is there a single mom who you know is completely overwhelmed by trying to work full-time and care for her kids? Sandra Lewis is um, a lovely woman who helps run Grace and Peace Community Ministries, another one of our community partners, and she said this, Advocacy starts with prayer. Ask yourself, where is God at work and how can I join him? Because God sees the hurt in our midst. He is already active and at work there. He would love for you to come alongside him. So I have to ask you, who are you advocating for? Where is God already breaking your heart? for the sake of others? And how can you go from passively worrying to actively engaging? If you need a little jump start in figuring this out, I mentioned our community partners. You can go to area10church.com slash community partners, and we have a list there of organizations that we're already partnered with um, that are already doing some really, really good things in the city of Richmond. But I think the most important thing is for you to say, where is God at work? How can I join him? Um, last week, Chris has read a confession. And this week, I want to do something a little bit similar. But I'm going to read a benediction, which means a blessing. My hope is that these words will settle into your heart and become a real mantra for how we collectively approach the world I'm going to post this benediction on social media later today, so if you want to print it out and put it somewhere that you can read it regularly, that'll be available to you. But for now, you can close your eyes, or you can read along with me. Um, but let's take a moment and rest in these words as I pray them over you, okay? God, I recognize that my greatest commodity is my attention. Help me to live from a place of abundance rather than scarcity so that I can give generously of my attention, energy, and gifts to the people around me. You've placed me in this family and this community of friends for a reason. You are a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit built on the foundation of relationship, which means I'm built on the same foundation Cultivate in me a willingness and readiness to contribute my best to my family, friendships, and global community so that your kingdom of love can expand a little bit further. 
This is how we win the very real game of life, not the Hasbro version. Yes, you can play the various rounds however you want, but in the end, this is the only thing that matters. These are the only victory conditions. Did you accept God's love for you? And did you pour that love out into others? God gave us a handbook, the Bible, and admittedly, it's a bit chunky, but he has been exceedingly and lovingly clear. Do not sin. Instead, love. Love.